shuts and you shut those doors that no man can open. And Lord, I pray that if this is something your will, that Lord, that you would help the, everything to just proceed along and um, that there would be established either a radio station coming out of Wiggins, the tower that it would get uh, all of northern Colorado or most of it, that where there could be good established Bible teaching and we can partner with that and, and we pray for that, Lord that you would provide, that there wouldn't be hang-ups, you know, hang-ups and, and different things that, to, you know, delay uh, moving forward in this process. And, um, and Lord, I thank you for the vision that Pastor Ed has for radio and what he's had in his community that has touched so many lives, not only in the Denver area and Aurora area, but also in, in northern Colorado as he's been on the radio. And I, I thank you for the vision that he shared with us, and we can partner with that in reaching this community for uh, the gospel and the good news a community um, as all communities need desperately the, the word of hope that Jesus loves them and died for them and good solid biblical teaching in a day and age especially when there's so much misinformation and misrepresentation of the scriptures and of the Lord and so we ask that Lord that we um, can just um, it be ones that continue in prayer. We, we give it to you. Um, and, Lord, we ask that you would just uh, work in a powerful way and that your will would be done. We trust you that the work that you desire to do will be done. And so, Lord, we give this all to you. We ask right now again that you would teach us as we study your word. And, um, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 19, where we left off, of course, we see in chapter 19 that it is the Lord that said to Moses as Moses brought them to the mountain of God. And you recall that when Moses in chapter 3 was called by God there as, as Moses saw the burning bush and, and he went to see that incredible sight. And it was the Lord that said to Moses, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him um, that uh, thus says the Lord, let my people go. They had been in bondage for 400 years and under the oppression of Egypt. And so, of course, uh, it would be uh, Moses that would go. And he told Moses that by my mighty hand, I'm going to work, bring down the plagues upon Egypt to where Pharaoh's going to let you go. And that's exactly what happened. But he told Moses, when you do come out into the wilderness, come to this mountain where you will worship me. And so Moses was told that, and that's what he's doing here. We saw in chapter 19 last week that they've been in the wilderness wandering for three months. God has provided for them. He's protected them. Of course, as they went out into the wilderness, we saw that the Egyptians came after them. They were backed up against the Red Sea and mountain ranges on both sides. And so they would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord parted the Red Sea, and there was a wall of water on both sides as the children of Israel crossed on dry land, and then as the Egyptians pursued them, they were drowned as the waters receded back. And so they saw the powerful hand of God, the mighty works of the Lord. And the Lord would bring them into the wilderness as they're making their way to the mountain of God, that is Mount Sinai, to worship God, just as he told them to, to do that. And God would provide uh, manna from heaven that would drop on the ground and we saw that in the previous study and we know that it is a picture of Jesus Christ as Jesus speaks about how he's the true bread that came from heaven and I am the bread of life and whoever eats of me that you're not going to die but you're going to live forever and of course the water would be coming from the rock as we saw God provide a walk for, uh, water from them from the rock 
And of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 tells us is that, um, that that rock is Jesus Christ. And of course, it's the Lord that provides living water for us. He would tell the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 that if you drink of the water that I have to give, then you will never thirst again. And so God's mighty provision has been given to them. So they, in chapter 19 here, they come to the mountain of God, and God tells Moses, tell the people to get ready. Tell them to consecrate themselves. Tell them to wash themselves, to purify themselves, because in three days I'm going to show myself to the people. And we saw that as God did that, that, that the mountain of God was on fire, and, and there was lightnings and thunders, and, and I think it was a divine lightning and thunder. I think it's more than the thunderstorm that perhaps you heard rumble through very quickly this afternoon through Greeley, but I'm talking about thunderings and lightnings. That was awesome, and there was the earth that shook, and then there was the sound of a trumpet, as we saw last week, that got louder and louder, and then God spoke, and Moses answered him, and the people trembled because it was an awesome sight. Some of us probably will stay up and, and see the fireworks at the stampede on a Friday night, and it's a spectacular display, but nothing compared to what happened 3,500 years ago on this mountain. I mean, this was very awesome, this sight. And, and so God was le- letting them know that he was there. They, they were there in the presence of God. Now, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten Son, He is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him, as John chapter 1 says. But we see that the tangible presence of God was there, and the people knew that there was uh, their God, an awesome God, that indeed had brought them out of Egypt. And so they trembled. And so now as we move into chapter 20 here, it's a familiar chapter as we're going to see the law of God is going to be given to the children of Israel. We're going to start out in the first 21 verses looking at the Ten Commandments. And, of course, I think that all of us probably could name the Ten Commandments. I won't quiz you tonight, but if not all of them, at least a lot of them that you can name. Um, The Ten Commandments are something that even non-Christians are familiar with. Uh, Ten Commandments have been displayed in our nation and and, uh, courtrooms and and, uh, different governmental uh, municipalities and of course, more and more they're being taken out of those places uh, because of those who protest. But the Ten Commandments here are the foundation of the law that is going to be given to the children of Israel. And as we look at these Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are going to deal with man's relationship with God. And then the second or the last six commandments um, are going to be um, man's relationship with one another. And we'll see that as we go through these Ten Commandments. But um, this commandments are the hub of all of Israel's religious and civil law. And so it lays the foundation. Now what's going to happen when we get into verse 22 uh, is what we're going to see the book of the covenant. That is with the civil and religious ordinances that are going to be given. So that is verse 22 of this chapter. It goes through chapter 24. And then the ceremonial regulations in chapter 24, it begins through chapter 31. In other words, the foundation being the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to see, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make carved images. Uh, you shall, you know, not use the Lord's name in vain. You shall not, um, you know, work on the Sabbath day. It goes on. You shall not steal, commit adultery, all these things. So what we're going to see is the details of that when we get in um, to verse 22 and following. When we get into the civil and religious ordinances and laws that give very specific details of what happens if you do 
end up worshiping idols? What do you do if you do break the Sabbath law? What does it exactly mean you shall not murder? All these specific details that are going to be given to the nation and how they are to run their nation and as a people, how it is that they are not only to relate to God, but how it is that they relate to each other. So the Ten Commandments, and then we see it's going to be what happens if you do murder? What happens if you do steal? What happens in this case, you know, that falls under if you do commit adultery or some kind of sexual immorality? We'll see the details of that given to the people. And so as we read in chapter 20, God spoke all these, saying, all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So the first thing that he says is, I am the Lord your God. These commandments are not given by man. They are given by God. And so I am the Lord that brought you out of the bondage of Egypt. And so he's declaring again his name to them. He's declaring that this is my law. Now here's the thing again, that God's law as we go through this, that his law is perfect, his law is holy, his law is righteous, and it's God's standard um, that he gives to us. As we go to the New Testament, we know and we understand that the law is given to us because it shows that we can't keep the law, right? And so Paul would say the purpose of the law is to drive us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Moses set boundaries around the mountain, as we saw last week, and tell the people they, they cannot come up on the mountain in the presence of God. Only Moses could do that. But if anyone goes past those bounds that are around that mountain, they shall surely die. And you see, for us to come into the presence of God, it comes through Jesus Christ, not through the law. And so we go to another mountain, don't we? We go to Mount Calvary, where Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who lived in the law perfectly, lived a perfect life, God's son, the one who declares God, he came and he lived a perfect life and died for our sins, that we might have forgiveness of sin. And as Hebrews chapter 10 says, that we can come boldly into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, not through the law, because the law shows us that we're guilty. So that's why you can't come up on this mountain in the presence of God. The mountain that we need to climb is Mount Calvary. As we come in faith, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, then we are declared righteous. But the law shows us in, that we need a Savior. The law drives us to Jesus Christ. So keep that in the back of your mind. The law is perfect standard of God. It is holy and it is righteous. The problem is we're not, and the problem is we can't keep it. So this is God's law that is given to the people. And so in verse 3, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, he is the only true God. Uh, he has declared himself to the people of Israel. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am God Almighty. And so he is the only true God. All other gods are false. Now they had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years and the Egyptians of course were polytheistic where they believed in many gods and there were many idols that they worshipped and, and many different gods that they ended up worshipping. And we also know that there's references in the Old Testament that tell us that the children of Israel while they're in captivity in Egypt began to worship some of those false idols. So the Lord comes along and he says, I am the Lord that brought you out of the bondage of Egypt and understand, have no other gods before me. I am the one true God. 
All other gods are false. And so verse 4, And you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and fourth generations, to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so we see the second commandment given, no carved image, no idols, no images made of wood or silver or gold, because God is unique. And God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said in John chapter 4. Now what would happen? What happened is, after they would go into the promised land in the days of Joshua, in the book of Joshua, they would have great victory, but then you have the book of Judges. And during the days of the Judges, they would turn to those false gods and those false idols and began to worship them. It would then be the nation that would turn back to the Lord during the days of David. And it would be after the reign of David, after the reign of Solomon, and his son Rehoboam, that the nation split in half, didn't it? And so the ten northern tribes, the house of Israel, they were plunged into idol worship, and they would go off into captivity about 722 B.C. by the Assyrians because of their idol worship. Um, And we see that Judah would go off into captivity because they were involved in idol worship as well to Babylon in about 605 B.C. And so the Lord, during that time, from the time that um, after the reign of David and Solomon, had come to the nation as they began to again worship idols, and he pleaded with them, don't worship these idols. These idols can't help you. The idols of Egypt didn't help them. And we talked about this as the plagues came down upon Egypt. Those gods that were supposed to protect the Egyptians and that they turned to could not help them. And so the Lord is saying, have no other gods, have no carved images. I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God. Now, I am the one that is true. And so those, the children of Israel would forget about that. And we see the plead of God over and over and over again that he would say, remember how I brought you out of Egypt, brought you to the promised land, how I bless you. Those idols are not going to help you that you're turning to. And there is not one single example that we see in the scriptures that those false idols helped anyone, the children of Israel. But it was the Lord that was declaring that I'm the one that you are to worship. Have no carved images before me. Now, when he says that I am here um, and make no carved image, uh, for I, the Lord your God, in verse 5, am a jealous God, I want us to understand what the Lord is saying in that because sometimes there's misunderstanding. And I want to bring it up because it was I heard a tape of Oprah Winfrey who has a big following and is doing the webcast uh, of her new class and new spirituality. And it's a guy who's involved in New Age that was doing a couple months worth of webcast in, in these classes that they were doing on a book that he had you know, just written. And they had over 2 million people that were watching that. So great influence that she has. But somebody was sending me a little clip, and, and one of the things that she said, she said when she was younger, that when she was in church, that her pastor said that the Lord is a jealous God, and she didn't like that. And she took it to mean that God was jealous of, of this religion and jealous of this religion and jealous of this God and this God, and she took it as, you know, when we're jealous of people or of something, when we're jealous, it's weird. It's sin. It's, it's, you know, I'm jealous of you, I'm jealous of you, and I'm jealous of you. And that's not what the Lord is saying here. The Lord's not jealous of those carved images, those false idols. But he is jealous for you. 
because of his love for you. And that's what he's saying. I'm jealous for you. And I love you. And I don't want you to go off into that which is false and that which is, is not going to help you and that which is going to lead you astray. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt because of my promise that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and because of my mercy and grace and, and because I want you to know me, have relationship with me, the true and the living God. I'm jealous for you. I'm not jealous of those other false gods, but I'm jealous for you in that I desire for you to just worship me and to walk with me and to live for me and experience my abundant blessing that I have for you. And so that's what he's declaring here. I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for you because of my love for you. And again, it's not a weird kind of jealous when we are jealous towards somebody or we have jealousy in a relationship or whatever it might be. It's a righteous jealousy that he has for you and for me. And so understand what he's saying here. And then he goes on and he says, Because I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, there are those who have come along and they will teach from this verse generational curses. Because of the iniquity of your father, the Lord's going to visit the iniquity to the children to the third and fourth generations. And because of what your father or grandfather or great-grandfather did, because of the sin he committed, then there's generational curses that will go to, you know, his son and his grandson and his great-grandson. And so there are those that come along and teach this doctrine of generational curses. It's not what the Lord is teaching here. He's not saying that I'm going to get you and put a curse on you because of what your father did or grandfather did or great-grandfather did. That's the Godfather mentality, all right? We believe in God the Father, who loves us, who's jealous for us, who desires for us to walk with him. So what is it that he's saying? That I'll visit the iniquities of the father of the children to the third and fourth generation. The Lord makes it very clear in the book of Ezekiel as he was talking to the children of Israel and they were uh, to the house of Judah. They were involved in sin. They were grinding their teeth. They were saying, we're in this situation and we're experiencing some difficulties because of what our father did. And the Lord comes back and says, stop that thinking. It was a proverb that was in the land and he says, don't be saying it anymore. And don't be blaming the consequences that you're experiencing on your fathers. You are responsible for your own sin. You are responsible for your own sin before me. And so I am calling you right now to repent and to turn to me. And so what he is saying here is, is that his word doesn't change. And he's given his law here, which is righteous and true. And the scripture says that his word will endure forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will endure forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is, is never changing. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to keep convicting of sin from generation to generation to generation to generation. Now, don't we live in a society that says, uh, you know what, we're, we're sophisticated. Um, we need to change God's law. We need to change God's application when it comes to his law uh, because we live in a different society. We need to be more tolerant. And so there are people that want to change God's you know, word, what it has to say. And when God says this is sin, he doesn't change his mind. So what he's saying is, I'm going to keep convicting generation after generation after generation of sin. I'm going to keep convicting people that they need to turn away from their sin. They need to turn to me. 
and, and that they will turn and desire to live in righteousness and walk after my ways. That's what the Lord is saying. I'm not going to stop convicting. My word doesn't change. So we live in a society that says, well, certain lifestyles are now acceptable because, you know, that's just the way it is. God says, no, my word is true, and his word doesn't change, and he's going to keep convicting people of sin and a need to turn to him. So that's what he's saying here. But showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. And then in verse 7 we see here that the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So you don't take the name of the Lord in vain. I think it's more than just profanity, uh, but also claiming the name of God in a way that disgraces him. Um, we need to use his name very carefully. And so, again, as we get into details about the law, he's going to talk about those who profane his name, those who misrepresent him, uh, and things like that. And then in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you your, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your, your gates. Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so keep the Sabbath day. You keep it holy. There is to be no work. You and uh, your family, your servants, the animals, they're all to, to, to take a rest. Six days you shall work. The seventh day is a day of rest. Now a couple things here. This commandment, can bring up all kinds of arguments. It can bring up all kinds of speculation in the church today. Um, there are people that have different convictions about keeping the Sabbath day. And so you have a lot of discussion about it in the church today. Do we as Christians, do we keep the Sabbath day? What I want to do is I want to tell you and show you from God's Word what the Word of God has to say about the Sabbath day. And will you wait till I'm done, okay? Because there is those that, that have strong beliefs and convictions about the Sabbath day. And I want to give you a biblical view. The Lord coming to the children of Israel and saying, Listen, six days you shall work. The seventh day is to be a holy day. It's to be a day of rest. We know in Exodus chapter 31, when we get there, that the Lord again is going to be talking about the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, not to be any work. And he says it's a covenant between God and the children of Israel. This is a perpetual covenant from generation to generation between me and the children of Israel, Exodus chapter 31. When we get to the New Testament, what does the New Testament have to say about the Sabbath day? Well, that's what I want to make clear to you because to, in the New Testament, there's no mention of keeping the Sabbath day. And as we see the New Testament, we see that Paul, as he began to, to minister there to the Galatian churches, it was the first epistle that he would write uh, that we have recorded in the New Testament. And you recall that Paul was writing, he said to them, that I marvel that you turned so uh, far away from the gospel that I gave to you to another which is not another, but there are those who come and trouble you. And, and of course, the churches of Galatia, after Paul and his first missionary journey, as you read in the book of Acts there, he established those churches in the area of Galatia, and then soon after he left, there would be those Judaizers, that is, the legalists, they would come from Jerusalem behind Paul's ministry, they would go into those 
Galatian churches where the Gentile believers had come to faith in Jesus Christ and they were saying to those Gentile believers, oh, it's all fine and dandy that you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you must be circumcised. And they were telling them that they must keep the law of God. So the circumcision was the main uh, you know, teaching that the Judaizers were bringing. If you want to consider yourself to be saved, you must be circumcised. And so Paul was writing to them, and that's why he establishes them, and it's, it's a wonderful epistle uh, for us to read, that you're not saved by the law, that you are saved by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. So he establishes that. But also it was more than just circumcision that they were bringing to the, the Gentile believers. Because Paul was writing in chapter 4, verse 10, as he talked about the fear that he had for the Galatian believers. He says, you guys, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And, and, and he, he was describing how, again, those legalists were putting the Christians under the law. You observe days, that is Sabbath. You observe months, seasons, years, Sabbath years, and all of these things, the festivals. So he says, I fear for you that you're putting yourself back under the law. It would be in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, that Paul would write, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. But also Paul would write um, there in Colossians chapter 2. Again, remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, as we studied on Sunday morning, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. So Paul would write that that um, that. Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are shadow things to come, but the substance is Christ. In other words, the Sabbath and those things were just uh, a shadow of things to come, but all fulfilled in Christ. He's our Sabbath rest is what he is. In Acts chapter 15, I think Acts chapter 15 is an important chapter to remember. So all of this, you know, is going on in the early church. Uh, the, the, the you know church there that was primarily, as you read the book of Acts, started in Jerusalem and spread to Samaria, uh, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. But the early Christians were those who uh, came out of Judaism, who had that Jewish, they were Jewish believers. And so there was a debate. All of a sudden the Gentile believers are getting saved. What do we tell them to do? Do we tell them to get circumcised or not? Do they need to keep the law of Moses? And so Paul and, and Barnabas and the boys from Antioch come cruising up to Jerusalem, and Peter and James and the guys, and a sect of the Pharisees, as you read in Acts chapter 15, they're in Jerusalem, and so they have this meeting called the Jerusalem Council. And there in Acts chapter 15, they begin to discuss, what do we do with these Gentile believers? You know, God is, is reaching them, and they're growing. Do we tell them they have to be circumcised? And there was a group of the Pharisees that were saying, yes, some of the Pharisees came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah after his resurrection. So there's a group of, of the Pharisees that were saying, yes, they must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So as, as recorded in Acts chapter 15, what happened was is that it would be Peter that would stand up and he would say, God has used me, as you know, to bring the gospel message to the Gentiles and they're getting saved. Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius there in Caesarea. As Peter went and ate in Cornelius' house, and then he gave the gospel, and he him and his household received it. The Holy Spirit came upon them. Peter went back to Jerusalem, and, and they were saying, how could you go into a Gentile's house and eat with them? And Peter said, God's saving them. And they were amazed at that. So Peter stands up and he says, why do we want to put this yoke 
on the necks of the believers that even our fathers couldn't keep. That is the, the neck of legalism. James would stand up after that, and he would quote, saying that it's the, our fathers that spoke about, and the prophets of old, that spoke about how salvation was going to be extended to the Gentiles. So God was doing a new work in bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together into one man, right? In this thing called the church. And so what happened was there was a sect of, of, you know, the Pharisees that were saying, yes, they must keep the law of Moses. And what was happening was there was a real danger that Christianity was just going to be another sect of Judaism with the belief in Jesus but keeping the law of Moses. So what happened in that Jerusalem council? They came to agreement, and, and, and they wrote a letter to the Gentile believers, and they said, these are four things that you do. You sustain from meat offered to idols, you know, stay away from and, and don't commit sexual immorality because that was a real problem with the Gentile believers coming out of Greek paganism and all of that. Immorality was a big problem. So don't eat meat offered to idols, sexual immorality, meat that's strangled, rope kill, you know, blood. Stay away from those things. If you do these things, you do well. That was the letter of the sent. Nothing about the Sabbath day. Nothing about circumcision. I think if the Sabbath day was extremely important to keep, and important especially for salvation, as some groups say that if you don't keep the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath on a particular day, then you're going to lose your salvation. I think they probably would have mentioned it, don't you? But with this said, I do want to say this. One person esteems one day above another. And there are those who have strong convictions about the Sabbath, and I think it is an important principle for you and I to consider is an important principle for you and I to, to have worked out in our lives, that, that we take a day, that we rest in the Lord, and we commit to the Lord, that's dedicated to the Lord, because we live in a society where we go off in a hundred different directions. And so I think that the Sabbath principle is a good principle. And it used to be that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, wasn't it that all the stores were closed, and, you know, there wasn't all the recreation activities and all of these things going on. And listen... Hear my heart on this. I think it's good that, that we become a people, and I know that there are those in this fellowship that you have a strong conviction that this is our Sabbath day, and we honor the Lord, and I think that's a good principle to have in your life. So please don't think that I'm poo-poo on the Sabbath, okay? I want to give a clear biblical um, understanding about the Sabbath and how it relates to the church. And so I think it's an important principle for us to consider and pray. Uh, there may be some of you that say, you know what, I esteem every day alike. And, and, and every day is a day where I worship the Lord, but a day where we just rest in the Lord and we slow down. And, and being in fellowship with believers and being in church, that's a priority. And I think that all of us need to take that to the Lord. You be convinced in your own heart and in your own mind, as Paul would say. And so some of you may have different, you know, views on it. But, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, you know what, I believe that unless you're a doctor or a cop and you work on Sunday and have a job, that you're not really saved, you're not a Christian. And it's like, can you please show me chapter and verse on that? Or there are other groups that say, if you don't worship on Saturday, then you'll take the mark of the beast and you'll lose your salvation. It's like, can you show me chapter and verse on that, please? So there are those who take it way overboard, but the principle is good. And so that's my explanation. Um, the Christians did meet in the early church. There's evidence of it on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. 
It wasn't some conspiracy that Constantine came up with when he declared the Roman religion to be um, Christianity. There are those who write papers and they like to, to argue. It's just a conspiracy. The Sabbath in the Christians used to worship on Saturday. Perhaps some of them did. And it was changed to Sunday in 300 and some B.C. when Constantine you know, declared uh, Christianity to be the Roman religion. We see in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, evidence that the Christians met on the first day of the week. Because that was the day of the resurrection of the Lord. One man esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. You be convinced in your own mind. A good principle for you to take to the Lord, you and your family. But the other thing is this. I think as we see this, and again, this is very important. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. You, rest, you work six days and rest on the seventh. I think the Lord is dismissing evolution. It is amazing how many pastors behind the pulpit believe in some kind of evolution. Timeline evolution, progressive evolution, gap theories and all of this. That there was some kind of evolution to where evolution, a process that took place in the gap theory where the earth was void and without form and, and, and the spirit hovered above the earth. And, and so what was happening is evolutionary process began to happen. Things developed, things began to evolve, and then they died, and I don't buy it. And I'll tell you why I don't buy it. And I'm a man of science. And I graduated from CSU in the field of science. And the reason is, is because I believe in God's word from Genesis to Revelation. And there are those who say, well, the word day in Genesis chapter 1, you, you, the word Hebrew word yom, can mean a, a long length of time. And it is true that the word Hebrew word for yom can mean a, a long length of time. But every single time that it is used in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word, with day or night or evening and morning, is speaking about a 24-hour day. Every single time. To say that things evolved, and, and, and I've heard that, that maybe man was evolving and all of this, and, and then began to die, is taken away from the very foundation of the gospel. And I'll tell you why again. Adam, don't eat of that tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of that tree, surely you shall die. Adam didn't know what death was. He'd never seen it. And so when he sinned and fell in the garden, God came along and said, okay, here are the consequences. You now live in a fallen creation where there's going to be death, and you have sinned. And Adam, you shall surely die. So Paul comes along in Romans chapter 5 and he says, when Adam sinned, that's when death and sin entered into the world. Before that, it didn't. And that's why we need the Savior, Jesus Christ. So Adam and Eve, here are the consequences. Fallen creation, as beautiful as it is out there, and, and some of you will be up in the mountains this weekend and all of this, very, very beautiful. It's a fallen creation. It's a fallen creation. And all of us are going to experience death because of what Adam did. And so, Adam, Eve, I'm not going to leave you without any hope because from your seed woman is going to come the, the Messiah. And, and Satan, serpent, as the Lord was rebuking him, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. 
So Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 is the first promise of Messiah is going to come because death had now entered into the world. And so we can get into it, and there's some good books and apologetic books on six days creation. So the Lord said on the first day, you know, this is what he created, in the morning and evening was one day, yom, 24-hour period. And here he says here, just as I worked six days and rested on the seventh, so shall you work six days and rest on the seventh. To me, God is saying, I work six days, you work six days. Same Hebrew word. You rest on the seventh, just as I worked on the seventh. We can talk more about it, but we need to move on. Verse 13, well, verse 12, actually, now begins the last six commandments dealing with man's relationship with fellow man. Notice that it begins at home, doesn't it? Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Honor your parents, repeated in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. We are to honor our parents. And you know what? Those who are living under the homes of their parents, the scripture goes on to say that we are to be submissive to our parents as unto the Lord. So those commandments that are given, honor your mother and your father, and Paul would say that as he talks in Ephesians chapter 5 about husbands and wives and their responsibilities. And then he talks about how children are to obey their parents and honor their parents. And, and dads, you're to raise your children in the admonition of the Lord and the instructions of the Lord and how we're to be submissive to our employer, our bosses, and all of this. The order that God has put into um, you know, us as Christians in the family, in the marriage, when it comes to relationship in the workplace. Here's the thing that concerns me. I think we live in a society that undermines the authority of parents today, and I think we live in a society that is more prevalent. We see it in Hollywood. We see it... Um, you know, in the TV shows, and the movie, and it, it, it just, it really leaves a bad taste with me. Where there is an encouragement of children to be ones that you buck authority and show disrespect. And there is not an honoring of mom and dad. That mom and dad's kind of stupid, you know. And go ahead and kind of undermine them and undermine the authority that God has put in place. I think we need to be careful and talk to our kids about that. And it's not just in the home, but also when it comes to other people and disrespect towards other people and, and, and in the workplace and things like that. And we make comedy out of that, comedy out of that, we, and all of these other things. And it does concern me. It would be Paul writing to Timothy. He said, in the last days, in the last days, it's going to be perilous times. And one of the characteristics of the last days is children are going to be disobedient to their parents. It's going to be a common characteristic. And so parents, talk to your kids about, you know what, this is what God has to say. And this is something that Sue and I talk to our kids about. That, you know what, you're not always going to like it when we give you an answer. We say no. I've had to say no to, you know, my kids even this week. I don't want you going here tonight. I, I don't want you doing this. Not tonight. Not today. And they understand that, you know what, that's what mom and dad says. And there isn't arguments, there isn't fights about it, they may be disappointed about it. But being submissive to mom and dad, and here's the thing, if our children don't learn to be submissive to as parents that are trying to raise them up in a godly way, you know what, if we 
neglect that. And if we don't talk to them about that, and if that's something that they don't learn, and here at Calvary Chapel, we try to reiterate that. I, I do if I talk to the kids or if I talk to the youth groups and they say, you know, my parents, they want, don't want me staying out past this time, and I don't think it's fair. And it's like, too bad. Well, everybody else gets to do it. Well, they don't have to answer to everybody else. They answer to you and to the Lord. You be submissive to mom and dad. So when they tell you to be in at a certain time, you're to be in at a certain time. Don't argue with them. You don't fight with them. You don't call them stupid and all this other stuff. You honor your mother and your father. Honoring mom and dad is something that will continue even when we get out from under the house. And, of course, that submission changes when we come out of the house and we grow up and we become our own you know, moms and dads and have our own families. But here's the thing. Honoring mom and dad never stops. It never stops. And that's one thing that, that me and my brothers and my sister have talked about is our parents are getting older and as dad is having his you know, own health problems and things like that, we've always determined that we're going to honor mom and dad because he's dad and because that's what the Lord has asked of us and that's what honors him. And if children aren't learning to be submissive to their own father, then what happens is they, they learn to be ones that they're not really wanting to be submissive to their heavenly father. If they're not learning to honor their, their mom and dad, their parents, then what happens is they have a tendency is they don't want to honor the Lord in what they do and how they live their lives. I'm not saying in every case, but that, those are lessons that are learned. Godly parents trying to raise their children. And I know it's tough these days, parents, and there's a lot of pulls on them and a lot of, a lot of things that, that, that grab at them. But may we be ones that from early age, you know what? Junior, you know, Billy, Sally, whoever. That this is what God desires of you. And, and this pleases God. And we show them God's word. And we pray to them about it. And, and teach them these lessons. Honor mom and dad. As long as you're under the house, be submissive to mom and dad. And parents, you know, talk to your kids about it. And desire to raise them in a godly way. And, and um, we need to pray for one another. So very important uh, application for us today and then verse 13 you shall not murder um, here we're going to see again he'll get more um, specific when we get into the civil laws about what happens when there is murder um, some people translate this um, into you shall not kill um, it, it's more murder it doesn't apply to the nation going to war because we've already saw that God called them to go to war against the Amalekites not talking about capital punishment. It's not talking about protecting, you know, innocent life or whatever. But we're going to see specific details about, you know, premeditated murder and out of anger and rage. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery or any kind of sexual immorality, as we will see. You shall not steal. Uh, again, we're going to see more specifics on that. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is, you don't lie. You don't lie concerning your neighbor. You don't lie. And it's not just your neighbor. But false witness against co-workers, against the boss in the workroom, yucking it up with others. Hey, I got a juicy thing to tell, and you stretch the truth. 
You just don't do that as a Christian. You're not to be involved in those things. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So you shall not covet. You know, it's interesting. Jesus warned his disciples specifically about this sin. He told his disciples, beware covetousness. It's one of the big ten here. But yet it's something that we don't talk a whole lot in, in the church today in our society. It's something that a lot of people don't really confess, you know, that, that I've been coveting, even though it's very easy for us to do in our society. I want what they have. I want their, you know, kind of home. I want the kind of car they have. I want their position. I want their fame. Even ministers have to be careful that they don't covet. Hey, I want their ministry. I want their fame. I want their popularity. I want all, you know, the size of the people they have. I want, I want, I want. So beware of covetousness. That's something that all of us, particularly in our society, we can kind of lose that, wanting something that something, somebody else has. So the Lord says, here's my law, the Ten Commandments that are given. And as we continue on, and we'll pick it up here at verse 18, as we see that the law is going to be given more specifically, the Ten Commandments given as the people are on Mount Sinai. And so, Father, we thank you that uh, tonight that we've been able to look at this and Look at these different things, and, and Lord, we know that your law is righteous and true, and, and you desire for us to, 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 Lord, to as we go through more specifically these things, that we can make application for us today. And, and Lord, how it is the, the heart of God that pleases you, and, and Lord, honors you. And so, Father, I pray that as God's people, that we wouldn't have anything else that, that, that we end up worshiping. And we may not have a carved image of, that has ears and nose and mouths and um, that's an idol in our home, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something else that has captivated our hearts. Maybe it's, it's some other possession or, or greed or, or something that we've placed in front of you. Lord, I pray that we would be ones that we... Lord, we take these things that we talked about to you tonight and teaching our children these things and, and honoring you and about what your desire is in the home. That we wouldn't be ones that bear false witness towards others. That we would speak truthfully and our speech would be seasoned with grace. Lord, that we wouldn't desire to covet other things, but Lord, be thankful for what you've given us and knowing that you are the Lord God. And even the, the principle of the Sabbath, that that's something that people want to pray through. And, and Lord, those who take that day to honor you, Lord, we know that it pleases you. But Lord, I do pray that we would have a clear understanding and, and be convinced in our own hearts and in our own minds. And Father, as we come to the table tonight, as we open up the communion table, Lord, that we would remember that Jesus who fulfilled the law, that he lived a perfect life, died for us because we couldn't. And so once again being reminded of the things that he did and allowing his body to be broken for us and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin. And tonight as we just continue to worship, again, Lord, just giving thanks to you that, Lord, that we, as we come in faith, 
that as we come believing and trusting in you, that, Lord, that um, we can just uh, marvel at your wonderful salvation that's been provided and the work of Jesus Christ for us. And so, Lord, we do. We come tonight just desiring to draw close to you now, to hold those elements in our hands, really realizing and remembering, as Jesus said, do these things in remembrance of me. Take of the bread. Take of the cup, which is a cup in my blood in the new covenant. And as we do this, that, Lord, that we would just again marvel at your grace and your mercy that you have shown to us. So, Lord, we thank you for this time tonight. Continue to minister to us as we, again, come to the communion table. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.